let me switch yeah, let, this over yeah. to and then I'll also tweet out the the live link. Yeah, yeah. Uh, looks like we've been live for 13 seconds. Let's switch to us. There we are. Can you All post right. it then, so that way I can find it on your on Wisdom of Crowd, so I can share it. Um, let me see if I can do that. I don't know. How well, do I do that? Well, I can time? just I can just go to Wisdom of Crowds. You and could find do that. It. That might be the best. Okay. Anyway. Oh, here uh, it is. Every every time up until now, don't, whatever you do, don't open it because you'll have hideous echo. You'll hear oh, yourself yeah, like 10 I'm, seconds I'm late. Just, I'll mute have it, it though. Yeah, have it muted and, you know, the comments and the rest of this can come in through there. Oh, wow, oh, so yeah. Far. People seem to be joining. That's cool. Yeah, good. No, it's funny, right? Uh, we've, uh, uh, this, this might be the first time that, that we're doing it without horrific technical difficulties. Remember, like, the last time we did this, I was at... Uh, my boss's house because my my apartment was had that nasty leak in it and uh, we just had that like really hideous echo. So I mean, to all of our listeners, watchers out there, does it sound okay? Shoddy sound good? Do I sound? Do we sound balanced? Say something, Shoddy. Speak to the people. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, but let's let's not speak too soon. I mean, well, no. Well, we are speaking ah, right it's now. Too late. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but hopefully, it'll go fine. You know, it's funny, but um, I, I wanted to, I have the, my, my headphones on. What I wanted to do actually was to go over and pick something up. It's a beautiful image, um, but I'll just tell people go it's ahead. actually a Domino's pizza box from last night. Wow. How, how, how much, uh, how much uh, pizza have you been eating? I, I, I think that I, I like Domino's so much that I'm trying to have it once a week. It's just like a goal to aspire to. Hmm. Once a week. It's so good, Demir. <laughs> well, so, 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 uh, um, whatchamacallit, are you, are you, because you didn't used to eat pizza, are you now, are you now, uh, uh, well, you work pizza into your diet, like? Some people don't know the full details, I, I tried not to be so public about it, but I was on keto for a while, not strict keto, but let's say lazy keto, Yeah. so I wasn't eating all that much pizza or burgers, I would have maybe one or two cheat days a week, but otherwise, I would try to be... Uh, pretty serious about that. But then COVID happened and I'm just like, it seems silly to care so much about what we're eating and to like be healthy. Because you could die tomorrow. Yeah. Like let's, <laughs> let's enjoy life while we can and make the best out of it. Yeah. And it's also part of a kind of reorientation in my own life. And, you know, we can talk a little bit more seriously about that if if you wish. But, you know, I, I feel like in this post COVID phase of my life, uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty serious about having a different focus and, um, I do have this sense. I, I really want to make use of, of my days of my months. And I, and I, I don't want to just like tread water. Yeah. And that's also, I think one of the reasons that we're upping the production of this, uh, of this podcast, because now is the time to just be out there and say the things that we want to say. Yeah. No, I, first, uh, some, uh, some user called nothing and then a bunch of numbers thinks you live in New York. You don't. You live in D.C. That's why. Yeah. yeah we, we, we see each other all the time. So that's that's uh, that's part of it. So it's OK for you to eat pizza from. Domino's. Oh, if yeah. You were oh, in God, New York, God that forbid. Would be yeah, terrible. that would be that would be wrong. But yeah. there is something, you know, it, there's nothing wrong with being a normie. Mm. And and. We don't always have to be like ironic and clever. Well, I mean, for the purposes of the podcast, I guess we have to be. But, you know, people can be like a little bit normie, normal, normy and boring. Mm -hmm. And I think that 
um, being boring is underrated, like, or being bored in life. Like you can just like hang out with your friends, spend time with your family, read books, not do anything particularly interesting or revolutionary as long as you're just focusing on building your private life. And this gets, gets to the whole theme of retreat. My, my, yeah. I, I built up this desire to retreat and to not engage so much in ideological combat and in political fights, especially online. And just to kind of take a step back and savor the moments, enjoy what we have, which sounds boring and cliched. It's literally, I'm spewing out cliches now. This is what happens when you become like- Old. <laughs> yeah, as you get older, that's the kind of thing that we have to be careful about. Um, but so Domino's, Domino's is, oh yeah. is, is, your, is, your, is, is the uh, culinary equivalent of reading more. <laughs> And watching Bergman movies, in a way. See, I'm not totally coherent on this. Right. There seems to be something in... Yeah, it's a little bit incoherent, but I'm trying to build this new approach with these disparate parts, basically. We'll see yeah. how it goes, but I'm trying. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, um, we were just sort of chatting before we went live on this, but uh, your 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 most recent piece in The Atlantic, what came out Sunday night, Monday morning, I guess Monday morning. Yesterday, yesterday yeah. Um yeah, I mean, it, it, you're sort of you're sort of grappling with this, right? Like this this question of, um, well, I don't know, uh, a kind of balance. Though, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I, let, let's put it this way: it's it's uh, as again, you said it was a, it's a bit of a meditation, and it's not exactly it, at times it feels like you're going going to go one way, and at other times it feels like you can go another way, and it's not exactly clear to me where you ended up. Do you feel like you're 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 still sort of uh, in a haze because of all of this sort of ongoing um, uh, COVID stuff? Uh, or, I mean, you're also referring to it as sort of the post-COVID moment. So you don't even think of yourself as being in the COVID moment anymore, right? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think that we're in the COVID moment. I think people have moved on. So in that sense, there is a clear demarcation for me. Yeah, even though um, like, Europe is not letting Americans in now, or at least they're, they're thinking of not letting people in because you know, they're uh, diseased, right? And that'll be to the regret because we are, we're great people <laughs> and they're going to realize that it's not quite the same without us. Right. But it's not that's not the reason they're not letting us in. It's because it's not exactly but it's also that. a little bit silly. Like, just take my temperature before I, like, enter your country, for God's sake, or I'll just take a test like right there in the moment. Like, there's and ways then, to get around this and then sit for two weeks in quarantine of your vacation. So oh, right. I people. guess there is that complication. Anyway, wait, but your original question, let's not get distracted. about. No, COVID no, no. My right uh, my original question is, I mean, I was just sort of pointing out that that uh, it's something I, I tweeted at my my colleague, uh, Aaron Sabarium, who wrote a piece recently and, and said something like, you know, uh, this was written during the COVID moment. But now in the post COVID moment in this sort of, you know, the age of activism, this piece is still very relevant. And he corrected me, he said it's not the post COVID moment at all. In fact, we're numbers are going up. It's still very much the COVID moment. It's just no one cares anymore. And that's more to the point. That's all I was going to say about that. Yeah. But, one th yeah, yeah. but, but still, you're, 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 divi you're dividing your life between sort of like the COVID and then the post-COVID in a way, or not really, because it seems, again, you're still, you, you still haven't come out on the other end, I feel, given how you're, you're struggling with, uh, you're meditating as you write. Yeah. So you, so, you know, it's funny. Um, bef before you guys joined joined this Demir and I were just uh talking and I was like oh shit I should probably reread my own article before we go on because I literally had trouble remembering what the argument was and then I thought about it I reread it and I'm like 
Hmm, I'm still not sure what the argument is, but that's okay. I mean, that that was by design, and I'll actually share a link to the piece for our um, for our friends here. Yeah. In case they haven't seen it. Well, you know, I mean, just just to to continue on, I mean, it's it in a way you're repudiating your your previous piece about about uh, you know the quest for normalcy after Bernie's loss, though kind of you're not at the same time, right? I I I I, uh, I don't know that that's that's part of the challenge of of how one conceptualizes this. Is it is it are you uh, are you are you not? Um, recanting that piece and quite frankly i mean we we talked about that other piece when it came out as well i feel like it also was let's call it meditative uh yeah and and here's the thing i mean i'm not i'm not always trying to make an explicit coherent argument in everything that i write I, i think there's quite a bit of value to um sharing with the reader how you're th- how you're orienting your own thinking process. I think, and that's something I want to share with people because I feel like a lot of us are struggling with this moment, and we're all torn in these different directions. And I, what I've noticed with, you know, most of my friends and most of the people I know more generally, there is this sense of push and pull. Yeah. That that we're reaching for something in our analysis, in our understanding, but it's just somewhat elusive in the end. And I want and I think there's there's something useful about presenting that sort of in real time to people who are reading. And that's also what I try to do in this podcast with you, Demir. I want mm-hmm. people I want to work out my inner conflicts because I think all of us should be grappling with those questions and also to make the point in a kind of indirect way there aren't clear answers to the questions that we're asking. Right. You don't, you don't have to have a conclusion at the very end that states very clearly, dear reader, this is exactly what you have to think. No, that's not to me the purpose of writing or speaking right now. Yeah. Um, I will want to say something more definitive in this more, you know, I am working on a more ambitious piece. I don't want to say too much about it right now, but a lot of the reading and thinking that I'm doing now is is really in the service of that so mm. you know i'll just say uh stay tuned <laughs> and, uh, i you know i i i uh uh i think actually our, our our friend uh mark schleifer uh wrote me this morning and sent me ross douthat's piece oh that was excellent that just came out and he said uh i forget exactly and i don't have it in front of me but said something along the lines of that that uh ross is riffing off of you um so I went and read it with that in mind, and and I I I think he's he's like Ross is, well Ross comes out in the same sort of place where we ended up in the podcast last time, right? That whole question between, well, last time when we talked, you were you were you were uh, talking about retreating, and I was sort of saying that right, like it's a pity that that uh, the Bernie and Liz Warren moment didn't catch on, uh, and yet you know. Uh, the current moment has basically. And so all the questions about uh, class inequality and, and the rest of this, which I mean, I would argue are more addressable by uh, policy that would have real impact in people's lives. Um, it's being subsumed by something much more symbolic, much less addressable, not saying that, of course, you know, police violence is not addressable. It is, and it should be, and it will be. Um, but uh but still that that you know there there could have been like more of a root and branch analysis that would that would have happened and it didn't again like ross has some some good jibes about why that might be um 
but I don't know. Are you are you there? Do you feel because again, I, I think I don't know when it was. Probably not before the last podcast. We talked a little bit about uh, how you're you're seeing some of these uh, um, the protests right now, um, and you're 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 not you're not quite as pessimistic about it maybe as I am as to like their effectiveness or their ability. And then we can talk later about you know how we're both fatigued of. Life. discourse <laughs> life and, and 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 discourse in general but like tell me a little bit about that yeah yeah sure well you know it's interesting that you mentioned doubt that piece in relation to mine because all my the, the the essay that i wrote in march at the start of covid which was titled how coronavirus killed the revolution was sort of a riff off of ross doubt that so i think you know we're, I, I i sort of see myself in conversation with him in part because his his columns really resonate with me. And I think his analysis of Bernie and what Bernie stood for, for someone like Ross, who is on the right and is conservative, to, sh- to kind of demonstrate that level of, I don't know what the right word is, sympathy, empathy for what Bernie's for, for what Bernie stood for or could have stood for, you got to respect that. That's not but, always easy to do. But the, you know, I, I'll let you finish that thought, but I just want to point out, right? Like Ross and 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 Raihan, these these are the uh, uh, the reformocons. So they've always had more sympathy for the sort of Bernie line. They've always been about you know restoring sort of balance on the right to have a. You yeah, know, uh, sympathy for the working class. I mean, that was that was their main thing. It's, That's true. It's, it's do like a pro-family policies, et cetera, et cetera. So not that surprising. I mean, yeah, he's conservative, but his brand of conservatism has always been sympathetic. That's to true. That, right. Yeah, that's definitely right. Um, and uh, and it's it's interesting that reading Ross's column today um, and, and folks, you can find it probably if you just go to the New York Times homepage. I think I think it's called the second defeat of the Bernie Sanders movement or something like that. But it 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 really spoke to me because I've sort of forgot about Bernie. And I think that a lot of people who have been criticizing me and attacking me as of late forget that I was a Bernie supporter. Um, and uh, so it's nice to, to be reminded of a moment where I was optimistic about a movement that I thought could really change American politics, even though I'm not a socialist and and there are other reasons that I supported Bernie, which we don't really have to get into right now. But I do think there was something appealing about um, uh, uh, about taking class seriously, mm. taking inequality, systemic inequality seriously. And what I worry about now and I think what Ross was worrying about in the column is if there is a movement that can be co-opted so easily by corporations. So he's basically saying that Black Lives Matter um, has has increasingly been co-opted by n- the neoliberal managerial class and corporations who are using the politics of symbolism in a very superficial way to essentially say, hey, we're on board and and if corporations can do that so easily and so readily, it has to make us question whether or not this movement, as it's become broader and middle class and white liberals are excited about it and they're being woke and all that, we have to worry about what that means in practice because what it means in practice is that it's a way to blunt demands for structural and systemic change almost by definition yeah is that, but but feel no free to push sure back. 
No, yeah, here's my pushback. I, it's, it's the question of cart and horse on this. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that... It's funny, I was actually had, a, had a, a, a good phone conversation with our friend Peter Pomerantsev yesterday, who actually called me uh, to bitterly complain that our orange president with his visa restrictions may have uh, prevented his arrival, which was supposed to be in September. Oh, I'm not oh. sure. I'm not sure that's true. Uh, okay. And he wasn't, you know, he just basically, that was his, that was his opening gambit to start a conversation with me. It was a good one. Uh, but, um, you know, Peter and I were talking about that, about, about the current moment, and it's not how Ross is approaching it. Um, but, but you just put it this way, right? Is, is that, that, if if corporations are so easily able to hijack it, I don't I don't I, I see it basically that that this thing was was ultimately over, always very hijackable because yeah. I don't think that the movement itself was all that sophisticated. I mean, you and I were part of this like group. We read we read the uh, uh, a Malcolm X speech and compare like Malcolm X's stuff to uh, again. Fair enough. It's early times yet in this and maybe maybe, you know, stronger, better, sharper demagogues show up later to, to lead this movement and, and to have it be sharper and somehow, I don't know, uh, less co-optable, uh, more sort of coherent. But I, it struck me from the beginning that there has been a lot of symbolism from day one in this, that this has been a movement of symbols. And to Peter's credit, uh, I thought this was really fascinating. He said, you know, the thing is, the way I look at it, he said... Uh, Donald Trump's greatest skill has been the ability to uh, basically package up complexities into really dumbed down but easy to digest sort of nuggets that then he sells to people. And, and that's that's his, his his demagogic gift. Um, and he says now you see like the opposition is, is basically mirroring him. And it's just very much this kind of. Uh, symbolic warfare that's actually not very meaningful. It's actually very shallow. Uh, and Peter puts it as like, well, you know, part of that is is a symptom of the failure of media, that media used to be able to sort of digest complexities and, and create narratives that were, you know, both more responsible and, uh, I don't know, made more sense. Um, I, 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 uh, uh, I, wonder, I wonder how much of it's that, you know? So it's not to me that... It's it's the fact that that corporations are so quickly able to co-opt this, if you even want to call it co-opting, but basically cover their asses by by shallow virtue signaling, um, that they're able to do this just tells us that there's something I think inherently uh, unserious about. And again, let me be clear: as I speak now, there's nothing unserious about violence against black people, like that that police violence, police brutality, entrenched inequality. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying these are not serious things. <laughs> however, however, this movement is, I still think, fundamentally unserious on some level. And it is and it, it is it, it manifests itself by how easily it's co-opted. Yeah. So this is where I'm still trying to figure out where I stand on this in terms of what concrete changes are likely to come out of this movement or this, you know, revolution or whatever you want to call it, yeah. um, cultural or political or, but, you know, um, and I'll tell you why I'm, I'm a little bit torn. And even hearing you talk now, Demir, I wonder if I'm, I'm, I'm still not sure if I'm getting it right. So here, here's where I am. And I think that on the group chat that we're on with some of our friends yesterday, I was, I was saying basically 
that I'm worried that I might have gone too far in the anti-woke direction. And I'm trying to be self-critical about that. First of all, as the woke movement demands. (laughs) Yes. Here's my hostage letter. (laughs) I. Sorry, go on. Okay, ready for my apology <laughs> to the masses? Self-criticize. No, no, go on, go on. You're, you're, um, you're introspective. Tell me. Yeah, yeah. That, first of all, I was focusing on a relatively small subset of woke people on Twitter. Now, to be fair, some of these people have very high-profile platforms and are quite important. So I wouldn't want to dismiss that out of hand. That said... They aren't necessarily representative of the broader movement writ large. That's one thing. Was I was I just was I focusing too much on a on a particular group of like hyper woke folks? Mm -hmm. But the more important thing is I started to think that maybe um, that maybe the excesses of wokeness are a necessary an unavoidable externality that if you really want to have structural change, you have to overcome institutional inertia. And the only way to overcome institutional inertia is to go further than you might, further than you might have to go. There has to be some radicalism. There has to be some aggressiveness. And maybe what we're seeing, these excesses are precisely that kind of byproduct. And that the core of the movement will actually lead to necessary changes when it comes to addressing police abuse, um, the abuse of uh, um, district district attorneys and the judicial system on the local level. And and also, quite importantly, criminal justice reform, mass incarceration, um, which, you know, the more the more that I've been thinking about this, um, you know, mass incarceration and seeing some of the numbers, I, I mean, it really is outrageous any way you look at it. And I was actually reading a, a, a wonderful piece on mass incarceration by Glenn Lowry that I think was published in 2008. So people might actually debate to what extent this is actually representative of Glenn Lowry's views now because he has sort of shifted focus over time in different ways. But regardless, I think he's still proud of his earlier work, even though maybe he's shifted a little bit on on certain points of emphasis. But, you know, it was really a rousing, a rousing case against mass incarceration. Um, And I think that that, you know, so but the only way to address these things seriously is to get enough people angry and to push hard And that's part of what this movement is about. So maybe I'm missing the plot in focusing so much on the hyper woke excess of people trying to fire people from the New York Times and corporations or whatever it might be. That's one part of it. But if that's the price we have to pay and I'm being, you know, purposely provocative here, if that's the price we have to pay to get criminal serious criminal justice reform to address mass incarceration at the root and to address police abuse, maybe that's a trade-off I or we as a community have to be willing to accept. If you take my premise that you can't have one without the other. So that's an open question. Can you actually have a real movement of structural change 
without the woke excesses. And because many of the people who advocate structural change are also simultaneously overwoke or hyperwoke, you know, maybe that's kind of the way it is or the way that it is for now. Hopefully it can change and we have to try to find ways to separate this to say that structural change is real and necessary and has to be fought for. And we have to separate that from the politics of symbolism that you've been a critic of, Demir, and rightfully so. Yeah, well, so, but let me, let me push a little bit on that. What, what, what if, what if, like, what happened at the New York Times isn't a big deal, and yet still that the movement is hollow and shallow? Like, that to me is how I'm actually sort of watching and, 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 and perceiving this. I feel like a lot of people are losing their minds over, over the New York Times drifting leftwards. Again, we discussed this last time. I'm not shocked. I, I don't know who should be shocked at, at what's happened at the New York Times. The New York Times has always been a left-leaning paper. It's been pushed further left by Trump. Uh, as I said, I think it's, it's, a, it's an abomination by how the management handled that and all, all damnation on them. What a bunch of, uh, you know, young uh, staffers got away with, you know, that, that, that's the breaks. If you let, if you let young staffers get away with stuff like that, they're going to get away with it. That's, that's the problem. I, I, um, I'm struck by, again, the, the, the nugget in, in Ross's bit. And I, again, I, it, it jibes with how I'm sort of seeing this is that, you know, everyone's focusing on this wokeness and the so-called excesses. Uh, I just see it all as like overly symbolic overly it's all symbolic warfare and as a result it's ineffective it's not good my criticism of the symbolism has to do with the fact that uh the symbolism is nonsense it's 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 empty now again i'm not saying you know look i i'm no historian of revolutions uh Perhaps you that's know, always a great way to start a sentence. I'm no yeah. historian of revolutions, but I, I mean, but but yeah, I, I, yeah, you always have to qualify these sorts of things. But look, here's the point. I, I don't I don't know how this is going to play out. Maybe 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 it does, uh, you know, uh, become more serious in some way and have serious demands that get that get met. Uh, I, I was also very unpopularly saying in our in our little group chat that uh, I feel like Black Lives Matter and all of this is going the way of Me Too, which is also very symbolic and also not making a huge impact, at least I would argue, in things that are meaningful and important. Now, we got a lot of pushback in the group uh, uh, from young women saying, you know, the harassment, et cetera. Again, I don't want to minimize that. I don't want to minimize anyone's grief in any of this that leads to it. I just think that fundamentally, most of these symbolic protest movements are useless, are ultimately useless. It's, it's, and, and that's why I like Ross, Ross's piece so much. It's why they're so easy to co-opt because whatever, you know, you, you slather this like little patina of whatever you want to call it. it used to be called political correctness, wokeness. I think I might've mentioned this before, uh, a former colleague of mine at the magazine, when we were talking about political correctness a, a while ago, uh, he said, he said, you know, I, I don't fully understand all this talk about, you know, snowflakes and the rest of this. We should just talk about it in terms of politeness, you know, and it's shifting the norms of of polite discourse is what we're talking about when we talk about political correctness and arguably when we talk about wokeness. And I would say that policing that it's 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 surface level shit. And, you know, the the, the fun thing about Ross and in general, what I think about this is like it's not so much that it's it's um uh, it's been co-opted by 
you know, uh, educated middle class, et cetera, et cetera. It always was that the whole the whole the whole nature of the movement is this sort of shallow symbolic warfare. And OK, good. All the all the, the Twitter warriors feel good, like they're making a difference, like like they're on the, the barricades fighting for right. Good. Knock yourself out. Have fun. I think it'll mean shit. Really. It'll OK, mean but shit OK, but let, but to counter that in, in one way. What about how the discourse around defunding the police has has been normalized and it's now part of the mainstream conversation, even though a month ago, most normal people would, wouldn't even be familiar with the phrase defund the police. But now, in part because of somewhat, in I, I would say, um, clever Overton window shifting, the outer bounds of discourse are abolish the police. So people were saying, wait, we should get rid of the abolish the police altogether. Then the people who were like, no, let's kind of rethink the funding mechanisms. Then they seemed more moderate, but it was still a fairly radical proposal in, in much of the country to say, we're going to completely rethink the structures of our police departments. That's a conversation that's being had now with policy specifics, with concrete proposals. That seems very real, right? I uh, sure. Um, also, though, not new. The policy proposals are not new. Um, they've been there before. OK, it's broader. Maybe that's the Overton window shift. And now we're talking about reforming the police in a way that that uh, we weren't before. Um you know, again, now don't quote me exactly on this, but but I seem to remember like two years ago, none other than the the demon Tom Cotton was also talking about uh, <laughs> about about how to to like pull back on sentencing and to just have a more humane sort of system on this. But okay, whatever. That was that was different. And but there was a an actual national conversation going. Maybe it was less gratifying to, uh, you know, this sort of like uh, Saturday afternoon activist class on Twitter. Uh, and now everyone feels like they're part of a cause and something greater. But again, you know, I mean, but it wasn't happening a at a mass level, like police reform. Like, yeah, there were bipartisan discussions around this, but it wasn't gaining enough traction or a lot of traction. And I guess that gets me to the point of institutional inertia that do you need a certain level of urgency and and urgency can only happen with a kind of revolutionary sentiment and with a kind of excessive discourse otherwise enough you won't have enough people paying attention so that seems to me to be the shift that we've had in the past month that elected officials feel more pressure from the crowd if you will uh sure look i yeah great and sure uh the the irony, of course, is that, you know, many, I don't know, probably most at this point, municipalities are run by Democrats. And we're talking about police unions that need to get gelded, who are like, you know, again, a public sector union that has been, you know, well, again, Republicans have defended them, too. So I'm not making some sort of case. But OK, this is this is also a story that's been around and now it's big. And now public sector unions, police unions are going to get it in the teeth as a result of this. And, you know, again, let's see what kind of reforms there are. Um, everyone's talking about uh, how Camden, New Jersey reformed its police as a result of, uh, you know, uh, several years ago. And that's that's like the responsible model of defund the police, which ultimately ends up not being defunding the police, but actually just disbanding them, destroying their union and then refounding them and arguably even giving more money to them because the kind of policing that is community policing requires more people on the ground, more work on, yeah. and all the rest of that. 
Okay, look, so if defund the police means destroy police unions uh, in Democratic constituencies and uh, and refound them and pay more money for policing. Okay, I guess. Good job, guys. I still I still think it's 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 interesting to me that that, uh, you know, the the very the very idea of uh, the the very nature of the fact that we're debating uh, police reform through catchphrases like defund the police um, on the one hand, I think, uh, radicalizes discourse and disqualifies a lot of it. Uh, yeah. Now we're talking, you know, the over and it makes bipartisan shift. it makes bipartisan reform also more difficult. That's a that's a I, I would think now that might not be as important on the local level of Democrats control everything. But on the national level, you know, yeah, I don't know. Aren't a national question, though. Right. I mean, yeah, they're, yeah, they're right, Fundamentally right. a local question. Yeah. No. Yeah. And so so then so then, you know, we get into to bigger questions about, uh, uh, you know, institutional racism, inequality and persistence. And this is what's interesting about it. It's like uh, Black Lives Matter seems to have, you know, it, it, it smuggles in a lot of anti-capitalist rhetoric and, and uh, anti-market stuff. And, um, you know, uh, as a Bernie supporter, maybe maybe that that heartens you a little bit. And uh, but it's 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 also, I think, a dumbing down of that discourse. Uh, because it just boils down to a feeling which is injustice and uh, an unwritable injustice that just hasn't been fixed all this time. So therefore, it's the system and the system is, you know, liberal market economy, capitalism, I don't know what, exploitation writ large, all the sort of catchphrases that you half remember from your intro to Marx class in, in undergraduate. I don't know. It's all it's all to me kind of um, nothing. Uh you know, feel free to disagree, but that that's that's sort of where I'm 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 still coming at it from. It may it may affect change. I leave that open because I think potentially if this has legs, uh smarter people will emerge to lead it. Uh yeah. I'm just not seeing any of it right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe this will be a good point to sort of pivot in terms of what we're trying to do. Mm. Because like there's a bigger issue here. Yeah. Like what we're trying to do with this podcast and with just sharing some of our ideas in real time with all of you. I think that both Demir and I have felt this this need to have an alternative space. That sounds bad. Alternative's not a good word. No, because that sounds too much. <laughs> a private space to ourselves, Johnny. Well, Twitter is not the best place to have debates that are thoughtful, nuanced, long form where people really have a chance to sort of unspool their ideas. And that's sort of, I think, what we try to do on the podcast. We start with little, like, we, people should know, we, do, we literally don't plan our podcasts. So we just decided, hey, let's go on live at six. And I didn't really have a great idea of what we would cover, but we don't need to, and that's the point. We're unspooling ideas in real time. And Twitter is not the best place for that because you have to come up with pithy 280 character, you know, and then, you know, people don't always read through the rest of your thread and they just take bits and pieces and then there's outrage, there's condemnation. And, um, sometimes there has to be, one might call it a safe space for dialogue and discourse because, you know, Hey, our generation, the coddling of the American mind and all that, you know, we need safety. Right. So, um, that's sarcasm for people who weren't. Yeah, yeah. Don't get me wrong. I'm not a safe spaces person, but there there can be spaces that allow 
deeper, more interesting dialogue with a community, not of like-minded people, because I feel like a lot of the folks who listen to the podcast, they're not necessarily like us in any clear ideological way, but what they do share is a kind of openness to freewheeling discourse, that it's okay to listen to people who disagree with you or who are who have sort of weird heterodox ideas. And I also had this fantasy too that one of my dreams and maybe there's a way to do this and if uh would be to essentially with your Twitter account you you stop you stop reading your own feed and you try to literally for maybe a week or 3 days you you read someone else's feed so you almost sort of assume they're like you become someone else in terms of their twitter exposure so i wonder sometimes my brother follows a completely different set of people than i do what if i lived my life with his timeline with his feed as opposed to mine or what if i what if there was some like weird anarchist marxist person who followed like, I don't know, the weird people that people like that follow. I don't know what they would be like. And I would I would be exposed only to his feed and to the accounts that he follows for a week. And so mm. I'm exposed to his or her world. I I love that idea because I feel like there's something distorting about my own Twitter feed. It's it's my own feed. I've decided who I want to follow. I've tried to mute as many people as possible, but you can't mute everyone. Well, you could, but <laughs> it's a different experience then. <laughs> yeah. But, but that, that to me, like what, what would it be like to, uh, just to give it an interesting example, what, what is it like to be Nicole Hannah Jones and to like go and log on to her Twitter feed and to see what she sees? I, I'd want to be exposed to that for a week and see that's kind of I love that idea and it's like this fantasy that I have anyway this is a, so part of what we want to do here is build a community where that kind of that kind of thing is possible this unspooling of ideas and we we should so also like I, doesn't it sound normy and boring and cliched but you know it should be it should be reiterated and reinforced right now especially right now is there is something really important about listening to people you really disagree with and talking to them and learning from them. And and so, for example, I was attacked last week because I went on the Federalist podcast with the Federalist publisher, Ben Dominich, and, you know, people were freaking out about it. And I'm like, wait a second, I'm going on because I have ideas and I can share them there. No one was telling me what I had to say or what I shouldn't say. And I shared my ideas and perspectives with an audience I don't necessarily always have access to. That to me is really important. I want Federalist readers and listeners to hear what I have to say. They might agree with some of it. They might not agree with other parts of it. So be it. Who cares? Anyway, this is all. Do you want to? Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I don't well, know. Well, no, I mean, uh, it's interesting, though, that, that uh, just the point on 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 on. Uh, the you know certain other people's twitter feeds uh I, we've discussed this in other contexts but i do think it's it's that um what twitter does is 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 reinforce biases right so i'm not sure that going into any one of the twitter feeds of any one of the people who are big russia gate people 
would no, teach no, me, would teach me anything. Well, would teach me anything, but the fact of how this sort of thing works. I mean, many of them I've met or, you know, know to be intelligent people, but they've let themselves become deranged. And that's social media that's done that to them, right? It's the fact that they've created these own echo chambers. So as far as that goes, I'm not that interested to see. No, but, but Demir, what about like the best of the people that we disagree with? So think about the smartest person who is an anti-capitalist that you know. Or oh, think, sure. Or think but, about the, the most, yeah, and then you follow their Twitter feed. No, but I mean, I, I try and include those people in my, in the people I follow. So I, I follow those kind of people. But At least you, I, I but, flatter myself that I do. I don't, I don't think I'd want to see what their Twitter, <laughs> what they're seeing, like that's shaping their views. But that's the whole idea. What shapes an anti, uh, a proper communist or Marxist or an anarcho-syndicalist or um, neo-trad monarchist? Like what is a neo-trad monarchist seeing when they wake up in the morning? Maybe that's not, maybe you're not into that. That maybe that's no, like I mean, a weird I, fantasy I, that I, I have. I mean, I I I find people interesting like that. It's just yeah, I'm just I'm just saying I, I'm not sure that 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 getting into their sort of social media feeds would help. I guess my, my frustration. It, I've noticed though that you know one of the recurring themes in our podcast uh, over I guess we're coming up on a year of having done this now has been sort of a, a frustration with Twitter. At least it's it's something I keep coming back to that it's just sort of it's. Uh, it's exhausting. Uh, I, 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 I don't find uh, sometimes it's an opportunity to work out ideas, I guess, in real time and, and bounce them off of off of uh, uh, people in real time. But but more than not, more, more. The opposite is true more for me. It just I find it exhausting and, and kind of it, it, it boils down things again, kind of like Donald Trump to the worst possible, dumbest possible thing. So. You know, again, and that's why, yeah, and it's precisely for this reason, um, just so we don't bury the lead too much, that yeah. we we are in the process of starting a newsletter. Yeah, we'll have more to say about it later, but we're sort of building it out, and we right. we want to we want to launch it in the right way. So stay tuned for that, and we hope what that can be is building our podcast community. So it's it, the podcast is an important part of it in many ways, the anchor. But we want to we want to build something around that because we feel we've already been able to build something of a community with you guys. And it's just so nice to see, you know, some familiar faces when we're doing this, like, the you know, like the great Mark Schleifer, who <laughs> was right. uh, message. He was messaging us on the Periscope thing earlier. So you guys can see what he was saying, you know, so that that's cool. But anyway, Demir, do you? Yeah, no, no. So, I mean, yeah, I think I think, look, um, it's interesting uh, looking at uh just sort of media. It just seems to me that that uh, we're we're maybe you know people have pointed out that that podcasts are sort of like the blogs of the early two thousands in a lot of ways. A lot of sort of people just sort of starting up something, you know, throwing stuff out there, having fun more or less. And you know, with the with the acquisition by Spotify of of uh, Joe Rogan, uh, that you know we've sort of crested peak podcast, and now it's all going to be professionalized, just like when the Atlantic hired Andrew Sullivan and, and got like, you know, the, the Megan McArdle and the, the sort of the top line of all the bloggers at the time. And that was sort of another inflection point in all of this. I, I'm not sure that that it's true exactly. Uh, you know, history rhymes doesn't doesn't exactly repeat itself. It feels to me like like this is still an incredibly, I don't know, uh, pregnant moment, maybe that that it's, you know, there's podcasts, there's newsletters, 
there's um there's been an ossification in media it feels like in a lot of ways uh kind of um uh, i guess a polarization of sorts i think it's fed by social media I, th I think it's fed by the fact that that uh you know newspapers have allowed their journalists to go on social media and become radicalized by social media and become unnuanced on social media and that's sort of impacting everything and this is leading to a kind of uh Again, I, I think still pretty shallow groupthink, but there's a thirst for, for, for stuff like podcasts, for stuff like newsletters. And I don't know, at least how we've been talking about it so far about what we might do with the newsletter is it's, it's not as formal as writing an essay. Uh, it's more long form than, uh, you know, a Twitter thread. Uh, it's timely and, you know, we don't sit on it and polish it, but it's something that we just sort of jot maybe back and forth with each other and just push out to, uh, to our subscribers. And ideally, over time, it's inviting the rest of you guys, you know, community guests, other people onto this. So we just have this kind of dialogue that is closer to real time than a traditional publication, freer than that, because, uh, you know, it's ideally, uh, you know, uh, we're not we're not we're crowd crowdfunding it. Um, and so it's not it's not bogged down in, in any of those things. And I don't know, but still sort of closer and more immediate. So capturing some of what's good of uh, of the sort of social media thing, gathering the right people. And, and I don't know, just seeing where it goes. That's at least how I'm thinking about it right now. Yeah. And did you want to say something to me or about the next step with the podcast? Yeah, sure. Uh, we're on Patreon. Uh, I think we, we just finished our, our, uh, the website of that. So you guys, please, uh, go check it out. Uh, you know, we're, we're still sort of developing what a third tier of support might be, but if you like what you're doing, uh, Go ahead and hit us up on there. We'll be sure to mention it in every podcast going forward now, <laughs> as all annoying podcasts seem to do. But the podcast will remain free. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, we're not we're not going anywhere, going hiding behind a paywall, just sort of figuring out other things that we can uh, we can do to sort of uh, grow and build this thing out. Um, and I should but, say, like our, our two levels and Demir has very ingeniously come up with this. The two the two membership levels where you get some added perks. The first one is crowdsourced. The second level, the special tier, is mob justice. So we're clearly going along with the theme here. And uh, so if I have this correctly, for the first tier, we'll do um, fifteen minute bonus, um, fifteen minutes on on top of the at the end of the podcast where it's sort of like a podcast in the podcast where we sort of take a step back and share some additional thoughts with you guys in a different sort of way. Um, and, and then the second tier, I guess we're going to do, I'm reading it here on the, on the site. <laughs> um, no, we'll, we'll do it. We'll do it. We'll do We'll do We'll, I think, you know, the way I'm seeing it right now, I think we're, we're on a schedule of doing one podcast a week. We'll see, we'll see where we end up, but that's, I think, very manageable for both of us to commit to doing that. Um, so far, the pattern's been we're doing one of these sort of live stream podcasts and, and trying to sort of make that a regular thing. Uh, but also, you know, for the second tier, we're going to uh, basically have sort of like a, a Zoom channel of some sort and organize once a, once a month also just sort of a, a hangout where we just sort of uh, talk. Uh, and it'll be, it'll be, Perhaps structured, perhaps not structured. Uh, we'll see how, how yeah, that feels. And I like the idea of a live chat with some of you guys because, you know, look, we're not going to change. Well, you know, we're, yeah, we're probably not going to change the world just with this podcast or this newsletter. But we do see we do see ourselves as building 
A movement sounds like a little bit too revolutionary for my liking. I mean, we're yeah, not trying. Too. I don't. I don't want to build a movement. Good, <laughs> Lord. Good Lord. Anyway, go on. Yeah, Demir doesn't believe in revolution because it makes him think. He it makes him think of peasants, <laughs> and peasant revolutions have not historically uh, turned out very well. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, building. I think a community is a more a more neutral term to use of people that we draw inspiration from and maybe you'll occasionally draw inspiration from us and what we say. And there's a cool vibe there. It's a kind of two way thing. Yeah, and definitely. Definitely. It's to me, it's it's to stay away from Twitter more and, and actually communicate and talk to the people that I, I, I do care about and that I actually I do respect, uh, you know, Wisdom of crowds, at least from my side, has always been a little bit of tongue in cheek sort of thing because of my own, uh, um, you know, uh, crankiness on these sorts of matters. Uh, but, you know, getting getting the right kind of crowd of wise people around to, to sort of talk to and interact with on uh, in a time frame that I think is, is again, uh, not quite the step back that an essay requires. It's more sort of tied to the the social media rhythm, but without, I think, a lot of the noise of social media is, I guess, what I'm aspiring to and hope to sort of be able to, you know, work things through. Yeah, yeah. And I, I have to say, look, I, and maybe this is also part of my my own upbringing as an American. Um, I feel like we Americans, I, I feel weird about, um, like, talking about money. I feel like I've never become comfortable talking about money with people. You yeah. know what I mean? So this is a big step to be like, hey, we have a Patreon. Uh, give us a couple bucks every now and then, that sort of thing. Um, and that also goes to, I think, um, issues around um, class and, and that maybe I'm just bullshitting here. Are you? But, <laughs> no, go on, bullshit some more. But, you know, it's interesting that um, money is seen – we're, we're a country that's comfortable with money in certain ways, but there's also a sense of money or appeals to money being a little bit craven. And there's like a dirtiness that's associated. Maybe Demir's like, hey, that was no, not my no, upbringing. No, 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 not that. I just think I think it's 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 uh, it's 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 good old capitalism, Shadi. If, if we're not if we're not worthy to demand any money, we're not doing a good job. Simple, easy. So is so it just because is it really I, don't, just I don't feel I don't feel <laughs> grubby about it. If there's value there, people will pay for it. I mean, look, here's the thing. I'll just say this. You know, I've been working at a magazine since I finished grad school. 2005 is when it started. Um, and so I, I, I that was around the point where already the uh, the economies of these things became sort of very silly. And I, I like the, the media business has been, you know, just basically um, kicking itself in the face ever since then over and over again. And, you know, these models sort of arise here and there and how to do it. I've always liked and, and celebrated the people that have been able to actually pull it off online to be able to, you know, uh, create something that's self-sustaining. I've always really liked, you know, not, not in my sort of political spectrum, but Josh Marshall's talking points memo. I, you know, I think in the end they didn't end up taking some sort of outside money, but that was very much a reader supported venture. He was paying his journalists, uh, through basically appeals to readers, uh, subscriptions, you know, certain kinds of paywalls. Um, I don't know what their model is right now, but I've always been quite inspired by uh, by by how that's worked. It's hard. It's a tough it's a tough thing. And, you know, this is neither of our uh, sort of uh, uh, full time gigs, but I 
you know, I, I, I'd like to, to sort of take a, take a stab at it and see what we can build yeah. uh, as, a, as, a, as a work in progress. And, and yeah, I guess we're being, being more a part of the American dream than we were even before in the sense that isn't this what being American is all about? You provide a service, a commodity, and then yeah. people pay money for it. And that's, that's apparently right. what makes us great. It is what makes us great. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, let's see. If, let's see what. Let's if folks said some interesting things. Let me m- make sure I'm not missing anyone. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, that's a cool. Someone makes a really interesting point. I guess his name is Clay. He said he asked, "Do I pronounce W O C, which is the acronym for the podcast Wisdom of Crowds?" He's asking, "Should he pronounce W O C like woke?" Yeah. I hadn't actually thought of that. That's interesting, actually. Well, that's up to you. If I mean, <laughs> it's up, it's up to Clay and Shadi. If you want to declare that that's what it is, that's fine. Yeah, that's a, that's a you know, that's an, an added irony to the title. All just fine by me. <laughs> Someone said, I don't know if he's addressing it to me, but I think he's saying you should read up on people you disagree with, especially considering how often you criticize the left. That's good. It's good to have some like mild criticism. Yeah. But hold on a sec, Shadi. Is, is that what he is that what he means? I, I think it's when you were talking about about Twitter is what he was saying that uh, that, you know, uh, following other people and the rest of this. I don't know. It's interesting. It's always fascinating to see, watch you get pilloried for criticizing the left uh, because I don't know, you're my you're my lefty friend. So it's it's. It's always sort of like a bit of a cognitive dissonance for me. Let me just ask you. Uh, yeah, sure. Step back to the to your most recent um, piece because it does end up sort of negative. I mean, you're 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 just now saying you know perhaps a hopeful thing about shifting of of Overton windows, but there's a, a real note in that piece that talks about uh, you know maybe maybe we've uh, we've run out of the special sauce that you know things are going to be bad. Um, I guess I was caught a little surprised by that not because you're such an optimistic person always that's not the point but just i um maybe it's because i'm dismissive of most of this that i'm not moved to such despair but what what's driving that despair uh towards the end of the piece there um but 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 demir i feel like okay it's interesting that that was your reaction because I thought I ended the piece on a somewhat optimistic note. So just to share with people, this is my last sentence, okay? Mm-hmm. Quote, unquote, quoting myself. Do it. <laughs> According to me, things are never as good as they seem, but they're usually not as bad as they seem either. Yeah. That's vaguely optimistic. I guess. I mean, before that, you're, I don't know, I, I don't have the piece in front of me, but like a paragraph before you're, you're talking about, uh, you know, the special sauce running out and then you're citing Annie Lowry saying that the generation's going to be scarred by economic disparities that are being inflicted on them and that, you know, the yeah. hurt of all of this is going to, to do that. I don't know. I, it just seems to me, again, it's, it's um, I'm not that pessimistic. I, I, I think we're going through a bit of a, a crazy moment here right now, but it's a largely harmless crazy moment. Um, that yeah, will, so what, yeah, go on. Yeah, so you're saying that we're living in the moment, right? And this, this is an important part, I think, of what I was trying to get at, that we are in the moment, so it's inescapable that by living in history, by being a part of history as it's being made right now, mm-hmm. that we would feel things more starkly or more emotionally on a personal level. So some people 
are falling into despair. Some people are reacting to COVID in very personal ways. It's a very personal moment because we're experiencing all this in a compressed period of time. So that's why I think that once we're outside of the moment, we'll realize that it kind of was bad, but it wasn't as bad as we thought it would be, or, or it wasn't as bad as it actually seemed like at the particular moment. So I'm also trying to get at this idea of our perceptions of time and how they can be distorted. And it's also worth mentioning that our friend Peter Pomerantsev has written some great stuff on how how our sense of time affects our politics. And and if, if I could find it, which I probably can't right now, I'd share it as a link. But it, I think it's called In Search of Lost Time. Or wait, is that like a book by Milton or something? I don't even know. Paradise Good Lost. Lord. I don't even know what the fuck this is. Yeah. Good Lord, Shadi. Wait, who wrote In Search of Lost Time? Is that Proust? Proust, yeah. Marcel. <laughs> <laughs> um Mar- marcel proust yeah um, that guy as, as he is you. occasionally referred to um so but anyway i guess so i think what we'll find is that we'll muddle through as a country hmm. so i i am also trying to counter my own despair and pessimism my own dis- despair and pessimism is really more about my desire to retreat from the intensity of everyday public life. I mean, obviously everything I, what I do, my career is by necessity public, but I think there are ways to not always be engaging again in in this, in this ideological combat where you're going online, you're writing articles every week. And it's always about, it's about being present in a way that I think undermines our ability to think critically and and in, in interesting original ways about the moment because we're getting stuck in the smallness of politics. That's why I come back to this phrase and we've talked about this and that was part of my original March essay, this increasing disgust that I have with the smallness of politics and my realization that joy is not found through politics. Joy is found through things that are beyond and above politics, spirituality, religion, family, relationships, friendship, reading, watching Swedish existentialist cinema. These are things that I've realized during lockdown. I've always known them intuitively, but I think they've been confirmed to me. And that's why I've decided that I do want to make some changes in my life. Now, whether or not I'll be able to do those things, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. It's one thing to have an intellectual realization. It's another thing to actually do something about it. It's hard for human beings to change their everyday patterns and habits. That's uh, If it was easy for us to change those things, we'd be a wonderful race. And I believe that we are fallen, that we are broken by sin. But also, like, my my... There's definitely been a Catholic and Christian influence on my work in recent years. Even the fact that I would use a phrase like being broken by sin, there's no way that I would use that if I hadn't been exposed to the Catholic sense of the tragic, right. which I have been. Right. And that well, has changed me. But, but you know, to, to maybe uh, end it on a note that rounds it out, I, it was a conversation, I don't know, when was it? Last week at some point, maybe Wednesday, I think I was crunching on a deadline. I had to write something very quick. Uh, but I found myself just writing again for the first time. And it was, um, uh, it, 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 it felt really good. 
Uh, and I think you were working probably on this Atlantic essay at the same time as well, because I think I texted you and I said, man, writing, I forgot about this, because I hadn't written anything in a while. And it, it, yeah. it's just like one feels clogged up. What was it? It's that Samuel Johnson quote. Maybe someone, some, one of our intrepid listeners can, can find it. The one about uh, only a fool writes for free. <laughs> <laughs> and Twitter is just like a, a ship of fools. Everyone just sort of spilling their guts out for, for nothing. And I think just poisoning, poisoning themselves and poisoning every, everyone else. So anyway, my, my hopes are to, to just write a, write a bit more and still be somehow tied into what's, what's happening on a, on a quicker pace. So that's, that's my, my hopes and fears, uh, well, not fears, but hopes and aspirations for um, whatever this newsletter ends up being uh, that, we, that we pull off in the next week um, is an excuse to do that and to sort of wrestle with these ideas uh, outside of the noise of, of, uh, of all these other uh, you know, useless platforms. And hopefully we can keep each other accountable to me. I mean, that's, that's part of why I love doing this podcast because it reminds me of what's important. It reminds me of why I do what I do. And we hope that as, you know, as, you know, as our audience grows, or even if it didn't grow that, you know, we, we all in a way can keep, keep each other in check. And it's been really cool to, to see some of you guys tweeting back at us with previous episodes being like, hey, this is our reaction to what you guys said. We found this interesting and we found this maybe a little bit more problematic. And that kind of feedback is helpful, especially if it's coming from a place of good faith. And by definition, I would like to think that everyone who listens to us, listens to us in good faith, not because they want to insult us or condemn us well maybe there's a couple of you but <laughs> yeah that's okay we'll take them too but um but anyway it's all to say you know stay tuned i think i'm really excited about what we're doing um you know follow follow us on twitter at wisdom crowds pod follow me follow demir and we'll keep you posted about our plans but when i think about what we're trying to do here i do sort of rediscover that sense of optimism, not about the world, but about what um, intellectual life can and should be about. And the fun that I have and how it's meaningful to me to talk about ideas with other people who like to talk about ideas. Indeed, indeed. All right, Shadi. Pleasure as always. Okay. See you, Demir. Okay. Bye, everyone. <laughs>